Amen. Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah? Zechariah. If you're new to the Bible, you can go to the table of contents and you'll see in the beginning there's 66 books in this one book we call the Bible. And find the little book Zechariah, which is in the first testament of the Bible. There's two testaments. Uh, commonly referred to as the Old and the New, a First and Second Testament. So find your way into the first part, and, and there you will find 39 books uh, in the first part, and you got to find that one book called Zechariah. As you find the book of Zechariah, you'll note that it's in a section of books, and the section of books where we find it is in a section known as the Prophets. Now, uh, there are other books because they're kind of organized by genre. So you have these, the, the genre of narrative sort of lumped together in the Hebrew Bible, and at least in our ordering of it. And then you have the genre of prophecy, and they're lumped together. So Zechariah falls in the prophecy section. That said, there are three prophecy books, uh, namely Haggai, Haggai, Zechariah, Zechariah, and uh, the book of Malachi. Those three prophets lumped together fall into an era of history known as the post-exile. Those three prophets correspond with three historical books. If you're still looking at the table of contents, they are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So those six books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and those three prophetic books, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all form together six books that are about an era of history in the ancient days known as the post-exile. I'm doing a sermon series where we're moving through these books in chronological order, looking at the post-exile. The title of this sermon series is Faithful to Fulfill, a Study of God as Revealed in the Post-Exilic Scriptures. And so we're, we're looking at the post-exile, we're looking at these books, and we're moving through them chronologically. So we started in the historical text of Ezra, and we, we went through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. We're just going verse by verse. If you're new here, this is kind of what we do. It's the, you know, the world's oldest book club. We get together and we read the book, I explain the book, and, you, and as you come, you start learning how the Bible works and how to read it. And the, more importantly, the storyline of the Bible, the storyline of redemption and how God's uh, redeemed a fallen world and showing his faithfulness in this plan of redemption. So, so we're moving through. We got up to Ezra chapter 5, and you get into chapter 5, and he talks about these two prophets, Haggai, Haggai, and Zechariah, Zechariah, and, and he talks about them there. And so we paused in Ezra, and we jumped over, and we, we went through. We started chapter 1, and we got through Haggai, and then we started the beginning of Zechariah. And this morning, hopefully by the grace of God, we'll get through the book of Zechariah. It'll be a fire hose, just like it is on any given Sunday. And so we're, we're going to move through. We're, 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 we're going to start at chapter 12. We're going to get to the end, chapter 14. Draw your eyes at chapter 12. You see in verse 1, it begins by talking about the burden. The burden. If you draw your eyes back at chapter 9, verse 1, you'll see that chapter 9 also begins with the burden. There are these two chunks in the book at the end of it, in this prophetic book, where there are these two burdens. From chapter 9 through chapter 11, you have burden 1. And then chapter 12 through chapter 14, you have burden 2. So these are what we call in literature pericopes. They're units of thought. And so we wanted to study these units of thought, which means it's a bit of a fire hose. But last week we did chapter 9 through chapter 11. And this week we're going to do chapter 12 through chapter 14, because they're, they're both these big chunks that are talking about these burdens and that's where the title of today's message comes from lifting burdens that's the title of today's message we're going to be talking about lifting burdens now you you see in chapter 12 verse 1 and you see in chapter 9 verse 1 the burden I shared with you last week that the Hebrew word for burden here is the word masas and masas is also translated as the oracle inside of other English translations. So depending what English translation you have, there's tons of really good English Bibles, by the way. So whichever one you have, some of you might see that it says the oracle. Others might see that it says the burden. And incidentally, these are fitting synonyms to be used interchangeably because oracles, revelations from God to humanity, aren't just like prophecy or revelation or whatever. We hear the word prophecy and we think, oh, that's cool. Someone's talking about the future or whatever. Oh, the Bible has these prophecies. Oh, that's kind of cool. End times or whatever. But prophecies aren't just about the future. They're also about uh, uh, the present. So we say that, that prophecies are speaking forth to the present and speaking forward to the future. 
They, they cut both ways. In fact, really the brunt of them are for the present context. So, so that said, an oracle, revelation, prophecy, like, yeah, that's cool, but they're also burdens. So masas, burden, oracle, it's really a fitting thing to be, uh, uh, to be used interchangeably, to think in your mind, the burden of the oracle, if you will. Now, the burden for the prophets, as we saw when we were studying Ezra chapter 1 through chapter 5, and then we, we segued over the prophets, and we, we looked at Haggai, and now we're wrapping Zechariah. The burden for them was this era of post-exile. The people had lost their land. They were exiled, and they had been exiled for generations, and now God was bringing them back to the land, hence post-exile. And God brought them back to the land, not because of anything that they had done. It wasn't something that they merited or earned. Uh, further, they were brought out of the land based on something that they actually did merit and earn. They were rebelling against God. And so as a result of their rebellion, uh, they, were, they, they, as a nation, started to lose control. Incidentally, that's what happens when you rebel against God. As a nation, you start to lose control of things. As a family, if you grew up in a broken home with a mom and dad who didn't honor God and honor their relationships and what have you, you, you know families break apart, nations break apart when people aren't living for God. And, and so too, the people of Israel, uh, they, they weren't living for God and things began to break apart. The northern kingdom fell, the southern kingdom fell. The fact that they had a northern and southern kingdom was a part of the breaking apart because they were one nation, but the nation started to divide and, and, and they started to fall fall apart and then they they go into exile and, and then God brings them back graciously and when they get back in the land God brought them to this land and 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 they don't live in gratefulness and thankfulness for what God had done in bringing them back they they just start to focus on themselves and they live rather selfishly instead of using their energy and their time to focus on God and to do the mission that God had given them to do most specifically the re rebuilding of the temple the temple was to be a worship center not just for their land but for the entire earth God had this plan of redemption where he's going to heal the broken world and and bring his presence to the earth through this temple and draw the nations to this temple to hear about him and people are going to be saved and 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 the fallen mess of the world was going to start to to experience peace and shalom and rest with God and and so all of this is coming through this plan of the people and the land with this promise from God and this porthole this temple where the heavens are coming through the earth and instead of living for that mission instead of building that temple we read in the historical text we read in the prophetic text that they were just making home depot runs they were going to ikea they were getting the meatballs and the soft serve and the shelves and they're just hooking their houses up and they're just living the american dream they're painting the picket fence a few times they're they're trying to get the bigger backyard and they're going to Best Buy and getting bigger flat screens and whatever, and they're, they're just, they're living for it. The prophet literally talks about what, that, that, that they're just at home goods, and they're just doing their own thing, and they're, they're not living for God. And so the prophets come, Haggai comes, and, and, he, and he goes, look, he has a burden to share with them. And Zechariah comes, and he has this burden to share with them. Chapter 9 through 11, he's pouring out his heart, this burden, this oracle, this massas. Here, chapter 12 through 14, I got, I got this burden I need, to, I need to share with you concerning, look at verse 1, concerning Israel. This is the state of the union. This is what's going, going on in, in, in our nation. This is what's going on with the people. And this isn't like easy for Zechariah to say because he, he has to call out their stuff. He has, to, he has to lift this burden up. Sin is a burden. It's a burden. You know, you know, consider the sin of lying. You lie to someone, it's a burden. Because then you have to keep lying to keep it going. Right? You, you cheat, you got to keep cheating. You lie, you got to keep lying. You, you engage in a particular sin or whatever. It doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop there. People don't just, don't just try substance abuse for a weekend. No, 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 no. It's going to keep calling you. You don't, just, you don't just try pornography. It's going to drag you into the pits. It's going to keep coming for you. It becomes a burden. It weighs on you. It weighs on you. And someone sees it in your life, and they want, they, want to, they want to help you with it, but they know that in talking to you about it, that becomes their burden too, because you might attack them for them trying to help you. And so Zechariah comes. He goes, I, I got to talk to you guys. 
Things aren't, things aren't right. I've got to bring this to you. Verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. As we begin this oracle, notice that the prophet is keenly interested in pointing his readers to God. It's, it's not just about them and their, their sin. Oh, to be sure he's going to get there, but he needs, to, he needs to begin with the foundation of God. He, he needs to tell them who God is. Let me, let me tell you about God. And this is important because there is a God who is, and there's a God that people want, and the two are not the same. The God that we want is about my best life now. The God that I want, he's Tony Robbins. You know what I mean? He's got some slick one-liners, and he's giving me self-help. And, you know, he, he's not going to, like, come down on me and start talking about sin and rebellion and stuff like this. He's just, he's just going to make me the better me or whatever, right? The God that people want and the God who is are drastically different. And this isn't just true broadly for culture. This is true even for the believing community. In the case of Israel, they wanted God to be okay with them shunning their mission. They wanted God to be okay with their suburban dreams, we might say anachronistically. They wanted God to be okay with them living for comfort, but the prophet comes to confront that comfort and to point them in the right direction. What are you living for? Who are you living for? Let's talk about the God who is. This is the God of Israel, he says. And the God of Israel is the God of creation. So notice what he says. He starts talking about the God who's stretching out the heavens and the God who's laying the foundation of the earth. The God of Israel is the God of creation. You see, in the, in the ancient world, uh, the cultures were polytheistic. They had gods everywhere. It wasn't like our day. Atheism is a really modern phenomenon where you meet people today and you might have a conversation about whether or not they believe in God. In the ancient world, it wasn't whether or not you believed in God. It was what God you believed in. And so, so talking about the God who's the creator is a way of making it really clear. I'm not talking about any old tribal God. I'm not talking about the, the gods of the cultures and the pagans. I'm talking about the God who made everything, the creator God of everything. And the bold claim is that the God of Israel is the God of creation, Zechariah says. So let me tell you about the God who is, not the God that you might want. I'm talking about the God of creation. The God of Israel is the God of creation. He's over it all. Incidentally, the Hebrew Bible begins that way. The book of Genesis is really the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the story of God's promise to, to establish this people, the people of Israel, and, and this promise that he gave to the people of Israel that they'd have this place, this promised land, and this progeny, the children of Abram, and his, his many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, right? And they would go to this land, and they, they would be established in this land, and God would bring this blessing to the earth through this land. Because the Creator God, when he made the world, the world rebelled against him. The giver of life was rebelled against, and so death comes as a punishment that fits the crime of rebelling against the one who gave you life. As, as the designer of creation, he has everything put together perfectly in harmony, but as humanity rebelled against the one who gave harmony, disharmony comes. So there's disharmony in the creation. There's dysfunction in our lives. There's, there's death that comes. Ten out of ten people die. And the reason why is because ten out of ten people have rebelled against their God. You might say, I've never rebelled against God. There you have. You're lying. See, you just did. There's no way around it. We've all sinned against him, and as a result, we all face this thing called death. But the story doesn't end there. That's the bad news. The good news is that through this promise of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and the promise keeps unfolding, and it, it culminates in the one who comes, who's, who's, who's God in the flesh, the God who's, who's revealed in this, his Father, Son, and Spirit, and the father in this storyline sends the son and the son is a child of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, a child of the great king of Israel, David. And he comes and he suffers at the hands of the people and he dies in their place as a gift to his people. I took the bullet for you. I died for you. And so I took your place and now you can have life. That's the God who is. So the Hebrew Bible begins with the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But before telling that story... What does the Hebrew Bible begin with? In the beginning, God created. Because the author wants you to know, just as Zechariah wants you to know, that the God of Israel is the God of creation. He's the one who made it all. And the God of creation is the God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. And the one who hung on the cross, the Son in the flesh, 
It's the Creator God in the flesh who has come to die for you to provide a payment for the penalty of your sin. And you who are hearing me today, that payment was done and that payment is in the account for you to claim if you would come to Him and you would confess your sins. You would know, oh, how loving and oh, how gracious He is. He's a God who hasn't come to shake His finger at your rebellion. He's a God who pulls His hand out to you and says, come, I'll forgive you, come, come, come. And so the prophet, he wants them to know who God is because the God who is is a God who provides that redemption for them. The God who is is the God of creation. The God who, the God who is, well, what has he done? He's, he's, he's formed the spirit of man within him, the text says. This flies in the face of the cults uh, nowadays who have these uh, religious and spiritual philosophies of, of pre-created spirits. I think about Mormonism, they have this doctrine where there's these spirits floating around in heaven and when a new baby's born, you know, uh, the gods are in heaven sending the spirits into the little babies and they pop out or whatever. That's not what the scriptures reveal, the God who is. He's a God who forms the spirit in the man. Uh, this flies in the face of the cults. It also flies in the face of our culture, what verse 1 says here. Uh, and I have in mind, when I say it flies in the face of our culture, I think about the culture of death that is in North America, specifically the wickedness of our culture and failing to protect the most vulnerable among us. Not, and I have in mind here abortion, which is the taking of an innocent life in the womb. The word abortion entails it. What are you aborting? You are aborting life. And in our culture, that is legal. And there are people who fight tooth and nail to keep it legal. Mind you, contrary to what the smoke and mirrors of our media and career politicians are saying while they're making money behind closed doors and deceitfully telling us that, oh, it's a woman's right to choose. I have daughters. I'm all about my daughters having a right to choose. I, have all, all, I believe fully in the autonomy of the human body. You have a right to choose what you're going to do with your body. But we are talking about aborting another body, another life, and that is totally different. That is uh, entirely deceitful. It is entirely a game of smoke and mirrors to transition the conversation that way. We're talking about the ability to execute the life of a child in the womb. We're talking about Zechariah who says the spirit of man is formed within him by God. The prophet then speaks of the dignity as he describes the work of God in forming, in forming the spirit within a human. To the mindless and anti-scientific claim that we don't know when life begins... Uh, that, that, that's just not scientifically true. We know that a unique life is brought into existence at conception. And, and further uh, to the science, I know from Scripture, particularly for those who claim to be Christian, the text is clear that God works within informing the spirit within man. This is not abstract. It's what the, the text reveals. This is what science corroborates. We currently have the most pro-abortion administration in history seeking to enshrine the legal protection of executing babies. Abortion on demand nationwide in law. Just last week, the president nominated a judge who could become the 116th associate justice on the United States Supreme Court, and she is backed by the largest multi-billion dollar abortion bill in the country. We may never see justice prevail when our justices in this country are so fundamentally flawed in such a basic matter of protecting the most vulnerable lives among us. Again, it's basic science and basic jurisprudence, not to mention basic faith. But alas, we live in a culture, in a country, where our nationalism and our faith is so blurred together. Hungry for power, politicians are swayed by money and numbers, and they will use God and invoke God, even Christianity, in the name of this the power, the greed, the spiritual ignorance of our culture has led to the corruption of basic Christian faith. I think of Richard Halverston, a former chaplain of the United States. He's got this clutch zinger where he says, in the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America where it became an enterprise. Indeed, the enterprise of religion. Indeed, the enterprise of abortion. Again, billions are made off of this procedure of killing babies in the womb and discarding their remains. Meanwhile, these billion-dollar industries are paying off the powers to keep it going, and so-called Christians have blood on their hands. Now, mind you, I, I don't have in mind, and, and statistically in a room of this size, you know, it's, it's statistically, there are people who are hearing this, who, who have had abortions, who've went through this. And you, you, were, you were led astray. 
and you are vulnerable and you look for help and someone told you, oh, this is easy. And, 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 and the thought of it being a separate entity, a separate life that was dignified, that you, know, you, you didn't know and you were led astray and you carry the weight of that. But that gospel that I was proclaiming to you, that, that message of our rebellion against God, that, that forgiveness that is offered to the one who died in your place is a liberating one to lift any guilt or, or shame about this. What, I, what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about believers who made mistakes in the past and you go, I, I didn't know and, and it was horrible and it was painful. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about uh, those who claim Christ who right now have blood on their hands because they're defending this. They even have ashes on their foreheads. And this week, I have in mind, speaking of ashes on foreheads, our current president, a passionate advocate of the rights and protection uh, of, of the execution of babies, who Zechariah says their spirits are formed by God. We have a president who's seen in church on the first day of Lent on Wednesday with ashes on his forehead and the sign of a cross Who's, who, who, who's, who's seeking to keep this thing going. And with the ashes on his forehead, he, he, he told the press even that he was giving up something cherished for Lent. What? Ice cream. He's given up ice cream. Isn't that sweet? He's given up ice cream. Now listen to me. This is not about politics. This is about powers. I'll pick on any president, and you know that about me. I haven't seen a president in my lifetime that represented my Savior. I'll pick on any party, I'll pick on any power who claims Christ and defies him. This is what Zechariah was doing. He's talking to the people and the powers of his day who said, we believe in God, but our lives are saying, no, you don't. In the oracle that we saw last Sunday, he starts denouncing the false shepherds of the people. And then he starts announcing the true shepherd, which he continues doing in this burden that we have in the text in front of us today. And the burden begins with a message of destruction. Look at the text. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all peoples around. And, 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 it sieges, is against, and, and the siege is against Israel. And it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for the peoples. And, I will, I, I, and it will lift and it will be severely injured. And all the nations will be gathered against it. The prophet sees God using Israel as an instrument of justice to condemn the wickedness of the nations around them. Israel, specifically the holy city of Jerusalem, is metaphorically seen as a cup, which can be seen inside of Scripture as a picture of judgment. As cups are poured out, those are pictures of judgment being poured out. The cup is described as reeling. That is a word that we don't use much nowadays in English. When's the last time you're like, you know, how you doing? I'm reeling inside. What does that mean? Ra'al is the word inside of the Hebrew, and it literally means trembling. Ra'al can be used for staggering, tottering, wobbling, stumbling, bumbling, the, the, the half motion of a drunken person when they're attempting to walk and they're all wobbly, that is ra'al, that is reeling. And so then Israel is this cup of judgment that reduces the wicked to this staggering stupor state. Unlike the wobbly nations, Israel is described as a sturdy stone that is immovable, this rock will be used as God's judgment to topple the nations for sin and for evil. And now, now, now skeptics will shake their hands at God and say, if there really is a God out there, then why, what about all this evil in the world? Why doesn't he stop all this evil? If there really is a God, why are there children who are dying and children with cancer and, and war and all this? Where is your God? Oh, the text tells us where he is and he's going to come and judge all this stuff. In that day, verse 4, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness and I will watch over the house of Judah and I will strike every horse and the peoples with blindness. Now notice the phrase here, that day. It, it, it repeatedly, it appears repeatedly in the chapter. Look at verses 3 through 4. That day, that day. Verse 6, that day. Verses 8 through 9. That day, that day. You will find it five times in chapter 12. That day, that day, that day, that day, that day. In the 13th chapter, you're going to see it three times. That day, that day, that day. In the 14th chapter, you're going to see it seven times. That day, that day, that day. It just keeps repeating. 
It's an important phrase, hence the repetition. More than a, a phrase, it's, it's future. It's talking about a real time that is coming when God is going to judge. A time of trouble, a time of battle. Not just any old battle, not just any old time. It will be the beginning of the end, the last days. Now, speaking of the last days, there's something that we call eschatology. Eschatos is a word that means last or end. Ology means the study of. When you're reading the Hebrew Bible, and we're in this section of the Hebrew Bible, Jewish eschatology is, uh, has a really simple approach to it. Specifically, there is the present evil age that is marked by death and sin and sickness and, and war and, and abuse and poverty and natural disasters, this present evil age in Jewish eschatology. And then there is a future age of a kingdom come where there's resurrection, there's life, there's peace, there's forgiveness. Notice this middle line, the day of the Lord, the transition between the two comes with the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is a time of judgment, and here the prophet is looking at the future, though speaking into the present, and talking about a future time of judgment. When you hear about eschatology or you think about end times, if you've been around the church at all or maybe around some crazy Christians, maybe you heard the word Armageddon, Armageddon, you know, whoa, what's, what's that? That sounds wild. What is it? Armageddon. Well, it's like future, there's this future day of the Lord thing. There's this future judgment that comes in eschatology. And, and it's all over the place in the Hebrew Bible. Let me show you some verses here. This is Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 30, Joel 1, Joel 2, uh, Obadiah chapter 1, verse 15. And you see the repetition, day of the Lord, right? Day of the Lord, right? Day of the Lord, right? And you see this language of a judgment that is coming, a conflict that is coming. The conflict is twofold. It raises up a remnant of the elect and it brings a retribution to evil. It's not all fire and brimstone. The divine judgment actually has a way, sort of like the way we make gold, it refines the impurities out of it. And so the, the, the retribution also brings about a remnant, and through the remnant you have peace that comes as evil is suppressed. And in these prophecies about like God interrupting present evil through this judgment and then bringing peace, central in that in the Hebrew Bible is Melech, Ha-Mashiach, which is a way of saying the Messiah or the Christ. Christ means anointed one. That's what Messiah means. There's this Melech Ha-Mashiach, who's a king figure. He's said to descend from David. He's said to descend from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's said also to descend from the heavens. He's a heavenly figure who comes from the perfect heavens into the imperfect earth and starts to restore the earth. Now, recall last week we talked about the prophets, and if you weren't here last week, let me give you a, a quick snapshot. When the prophets are looking into the future, it's as though they're looking at the mountaintops. And so they don't quite see the valleys that are in between, but they see the mountaintops, what the Hebrew prophets saw. And so when they prophesy, they kind of blur together like, oh, judgment, oh, peace, oh, death, oh, oh resurrection. And it, and it all comes together in this message about how God is going to restore the present evil age with God's kingdom to come through the day of the Lord, this time of trouble and conflict through this Messiah figure. Draw your eyes back at the text, verse 5. The clans of Judah will say in their hearts a strong support for the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. Now based on this verse, there are prophecy scholars who think that Judah, which is one of the tribes of Israel, actually comes to a place of repentance here. That maybe in this day of the Lord, in this battle, in the present evil age, Judah sort of sided with the nations, and now God is bringing Judah back in as a part of establishing the remnant. Draw your eyes at verse 6. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among the sheaves, and they will consume the right hand and the left and the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell in their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord will also save the tents of Judah first, so the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. Now notice the language here of fire. See how the fire consumes the wicked. By the way, if you're new here, do you see what I'm doing? I'm just reading the Bible, explaining it. Reading the Bible, explaining it. Reading the Bible, explaining it. I want you to learn this, this, this book. When you come to this church, you're not going to hear a pastor up here just giving you some self-help, his thoughts or whatever. I'm going I'm to keep going. Now, let's read it. Let's talk about it. Let's read it. Let's talk about it. See the language of the fire. See the fire consumes the wicked. Mind you, this isn't hell. This is actually a fire that comes to the earth that is bringing about not an afterlife, but a renewal of the earth. And that renewal is that day of the Lord, that conflict, that trouble, that Armageddon. There's that word again. The word Armageddon comes from a Hebrew word, Har-Mageddon, 
The word Har is a word that means mountain. Megiddo is a specific location that is a battleground in this day of conflict. You can read about Har Megiddo, Harmageddon, Armageddon in the book of Revelation. In fact, in the 16th chapter of the book of Revelation, write it down, you can read it this week, in that apocalyptic text, Revelation 16, we have a revelation of the angel of God and he's pouring out a cup. Remember I told you cups are symbols of judgment, these bowls, these cups are judgment. And it shows a battle that's going on that just isn't a human battle, it's a cosmic battle. Indeed, inside of the Hebrew Bible, we see this, the wars of the nations. Even today, what we see going on in, 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 uh, in, in the Ukraine, in Russia, in Europe, there's more going on than humans not getting along with each other. There's more going on than a man named Putin. There are angels, there are demons, there are spiritual forces at work behind this. In Harmageddon, there's this darkness that wraps around the mountain. There's a conflict that comes. The battle rages. Again, Revelation 16. There's not time to survey uh, the book of Revelation. We're just trying to get through Zechariah this morning. But I highly recommend if you read Revelation chapter 6 through 19 today or sometime this week while Zechariah is fresh on your mind, you're going to see the parallels in these texts. It's a big battle. There's the infamous Antichrist. There's these false prophets. Zechariah talks about the false prophets in this text in this time of judgment. There's international confusion, violence, suffering. All of this we, we, we see happening in our post-industrial nuclear age that we are living in. You, you read through Revelation 6 through 19. You get to chapter 19. The, the battle comes to head and then the, the return of Christ comes. Here is a, a picture of the terrain of Har Megiddo. It's about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. This is where it's believed to all go down. Those of you who have come on my uh, Israel trip, we went to this site and you got to see it. Uh, and it's just a, it's an incredible site. It's a site where there's been many historic battles. Uh, you know, we, th we think about uh, the days of ancient Egyptians. Napoleon battled there, the, not to mention World War I and the Arab-Israeli conflict in the 1940s. In, in the Hebrew Bible, there's great conflicts there. King Saul and King, King Josiah dies in the plain of Megiddo. In fact, in Zechariah, we're going to see him reference Josiah's death in verse 11. So let's, let's keep reading. Draw your eyes back to the text, verse 8, where we left off. In the day of the Lord, he will defend the inhabitants of Israel, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who was feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God and the angel of the Lord before them. Verse 9, and in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So earlier we saw that God would make the nations real. They would tremble. They would be bumbling. And, and they would become feeble. And here we see that even the feeble of Jerusalem would be stronger than the nations. Recall the earlier image of Israel being the immovable heavy rock that couldn't be lifted. And the people would be fortified. The nations would come against them and they would fall. The Jewish people, the, the prophecy, they're, they're going to be made like a might, the mighty angel of the Lord. They'll be like the military leader David. And speaking of David, look at verse 10 where we left off. The text says, I will pour out on the house of David. This brings us to the next point, David's progeny. We see destruction prophesied. We see David's progeny, the great king. I will pour out, look at the text, verse 10, on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Zechariah the prophet is seeing the last days. The events blur together on the horizon. Recall this image that I, that I showed you of how the prophets see this. And so the images are blurring together. He's seeing a revival. He's seeing the wicked nations in ruins. He's, he's seeing revival and ruins. And it begins with God doing a work in the hearts of his people. He, the Spirit, is poured out on the people. Recall, recall I told you, God's Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit's being poured out on the people. The Hebrew prophets foresaw a day when the Spirit would be poured out on Israel. In the New Testament, we, we read about this in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And the Spirit is poured out and the Apostle Peter, he, he starts to quote and reference uh, the, the, the prophet Joel from the Hebrew Bible. And he's like, look, this is a foretaste of that. The outpouring is a glimpse of the future. Zechariah, seeing this future when the ethnic descendants of Abram are brought to the land and the Spirit is poured out on them. Keep in mind, this is the post-exile. The people have just been brought back to the land. But something is missing in the post-exile. Their hearts aren't right. The prophet has a burden. Your hearts aren't right. You're not living for God. You claim you believe in him, but look at what you're doing. You got the ashes on your forehead. You go to church. You smile. You say the God bless you. You know, you're not doing the positive vibes. You're doing the God bless you. You're, you're serious with your faith and everything. But something's missing. Zechariah says something is missing. You know what's missing? The spirit. You know what else is missing in the post-exile? The temple where the Spirit dwells. 
Why, why, why is the Spirit being poured out, though? Why, why is he seeing this day when the Spirit will be poured out, though? I'm going to show you. Let the Bible answer the question. Verse 10, So they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as the one who mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. I, I've I had the painful experience. Uh, my, my, step, my stepbrother died when I was a teenager. He was 10 years old. My stepmother, that was her only child. Our house was never the same after it. Decades later, to this day, I can, I can talk to my stepmom. Still, still fresh, still hurts. You lose your son. You lose your son, the pain of that. Now the text uses that as a picture. The Spirit is poured out so that the people will have their eyes open to see this mysterious figure whom they have pierced. And they see the one who they have pierced and they immediately are brought to that place of, of like one who's lost a son and they're brought to this place of, of mourning. And in prophecy, you, you see the one who was pierced. I mean, this is the one I've been telling you about. The, the, the one the Father sent. His, his son who, who bled out and was pinned on the cross of Calvary for us who died for you. Who you can come to now because he was dying in your, your place. He was, he was paying the penalty of your, your sin. You can come to him now. And you know what coming to him begins with? It begins with mourning. I've sinned. I need him. I, I see he died for me. Not in abstract. I did it. Peter in Acts 2, when the Spirit was poured out as a foretaste of this great prophetic day, when he preached that, that sermon, he turned to the people and he said, you nailed him to the cross. There's this corporate sense that humanity is responsible for this. And when you behold him and you're brought to that place of, my goodness, he was hanging there for me, he did that for me, it brings you to this place of weeping and forgiveness and redemption. The author to the Gospel of John, when he, when he wrote the Gospel of John in the 19th chapter, verse 37, he describes the historic detail of the Roman soldier who pierced the side of Jesus. And when he pierced the side of Jesus, because he was dead on the cross, th there was no movement of the body. There was no mincing of the body. There was just blood and water that flowed out the side. A punctured pericardium, blood and water just spilling out the side. In the Gospel of John, John saw this, but the people didn't see this. In the last days, the people will see this. They will see the one who was pierced. They'll see the one who was pierced. This is Jesus. Notice that for Zechariah, he is writing hundreds of years before Jesus. So he, he's writing about something that's going to happen in the, in, in the future. And not just the coming of Jesus who would be pierced, but the return of Jesus. Again, he's seeing those mountaintops and it's being fused together. He sees the one pierced. He sees the one coming. He sees the Spirit pouring out. He sees the people who are having the Spirit poured out. Why is the Spirit poured out? So they will see. Because it's the work of the Spirit to regenerate our hearts to see Him. Speaking of the past piercing, the prophet Isaiah has an incredible messianic passage. Look at this. This is Isaiah 53. You can write it down. You can study it further. But I put the reference in front of you. The one who was smitten of God. The one who was pierced through for our transgressions. Who was crushed for our iniquities. Whose, whose chastening of, of ours, it fell upon Him. He took the place for us. The car was coming. You weren't paying attention. A pedestrian jumped out and pushed you out of the way and died in your place. But this wasn't a mere driver who was looking at their phone and not paying attention. It was justice that was being doled out for rebelling against God. So the illustration doesn't fully capture the, the weight of the reality that we deserve to be punished. But there was one who, who was taking it for us. He was pierced for us. Mind you, this is hundreds of years before the Romans come on scene and popularize crucifixion. To be sure, other cultures did, Persians, Seleucids, and whatnot, but the, the Romans popularized this. And so, so in a culture, the Jewish people don't exercise crucifixion. To have these prophecies of crucifixion and piercing, I mean, this, this is huge that they see these things. Along with Isaiah and Zechariah, we think of King David in Psalm 22, who also had that great messianic prophecy about being pierced in the hands and the feet. Zechariah is saying, look, the people will see this. And they'll see that the piercing was their doing. They'll see that it was on their hands. They'll see that corporate responsibility. And oh, that we as well would see that. 
This isn't some man 2,000 years ago who died in the corner of the, the Middle East abstractly or whatever. He's, he's doing this for his people. The pain of losing a son, the figure of the pierced one who's rejected by his people, it all corresponds perfectly to the first and second coming of Christ. In his first arrival, he was rejected. In his return, he draws the people by the Spirit in repentance, and the Spirit brings the people mourning for their sin. Look at the text, verse 11. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of, of, of Hadadramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the Lamb will mourn in every family by itself, and the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and the wives themselves, and the family of the Shemites by itself, and the wives by themselves, and all the families of the earth, every family by itself, and the wives by themselves. What's the point? Everyone's going to mourn. That was just a long way of saying it. And this brings us to the next point where we see depravity's power we move from destruction prophesied to david's progeny to depravity's power the prophecy continues with god delivering his people from their depravity bringing them into mourning and then removing idolatry from their hearts zechariah 13 look look, look at the text here in that day a, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. And it will come about in that, that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered and I will remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. God is going to remove the idols. He's not just going to take away their idols. He's going to take away their names, which is to say you won't even remember them anymore. Imagine having the memory of your sin wiped away from your mind and even your soul. You, you know what I'm talking about. You know what it is to close your eyes and think about things that you have done. Relationships, bad decisions, sin, lie, deceit. You know what it is to, to remember that. And here there's a day where the Father frees the people from that guilt of the past. You won't even remember the names of it anymore. Oh, the serpent who would whisper in your ear trying to remind you that you're not worthy, that God won't forgive you, that you've done this and that you're wrong and there's no redemption for you, there's no forgiveness of you. The scripture says, to heck with that. The Father's going to lift the shame. The Father's going to wipe away shame. He's going to wipe away the darkness. He's going to remove those idols. He's going to remove their names. And he's going to remove the false prophets. Draw your eyes back at the text in verse 3. And, and if anyone still prophesies to the father and the mother who gave him birth, and they will say to him, you shall not live. And you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. And it will come about in the day that the prophets will be ashamed of his vision and prophesies. And he will put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But I will say, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I'm just a tiller of the ground. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth. But what's going on here? The false prophets are exposed and now they're trying to hide themselves. The false prophets wore these uh, kinds of uniforms and now they're taking them off and they're, they're trying to blend in or whatever. They're trying to, you know, hey, hey, that's not, that's not me. You know, I'm not that guy anymore. And one will say to him, verse 6, what are the wounds between your arms? And he will say, oh, I was just, uh, you know, hanging out with my friends and I got these wounds. You see, the false prophets would often cut themselves as a part of pagan ritual. And so these guys are trying to play it off. Oh, you know, that's from baseball. That's Little League right there. It's like, no, we know you were rolling down with Baal, sacrificing humans and doing weird pagan stuff or whatever. Now you're trying to blend in and play it off like you got those scars playing baseball and you're just, you know, Billy from the block or whatever. We, we know about you. God's revealing it. Awake, verse 7, O sword against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep may be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones and it will come about in the land, declares the Lord, that two parts will be cut and perish and the third will be left out. The language of cutting brings us to the next point, the, decla the declaration that is proclaimed, the cut who perish. We see the destruction prophesied, David's progeny, depravity's power, now declaration proclaimed, the cut who perish. The passage speaks about parts being cut, the people are being divided, and it's tied to the responses of people to the true shepherd and, 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 and those who, who turn from him. Draw your eyes at verse 9. I will bring a third part out of the fire, refine the silver as it is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And I will call on my name, and I will answer them. And they will say, they are my people. And I will say, the Lord is my God. Here you see the faithfulness of God. He, forg he forgives them. You guys got idols. You got these weird, you know, false prophets cutting themselves and doing goofball ancient pagan stuff or whatever. You're, you're effectively cheating on God, but God's like, I love, I love you. I'm going to cut, I'm going to divide, I'm going to, I'm going to raise up this remnant. Again, through the retribution, a remnant comes. And deliverance, next point on your outline, begins pushing back. It begins pushing back the darkness. Zechariah chapter 14, Behold, the day is coming with the Lord. 
When the spoil will be taken from you, it will be divided among you. For I will gather the nations against Jerusalem in battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, and the rest of the city will not be cut down from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, and when he fights on the day of battle, you, you, have, you have these powers that are pressing women, women are being ravished. We see this in the news right now of the Ukraine and you see men being separated from their families and children being thrown off and you, know, and, and you think of human trafficking and wolves that are out there who would exploit the weak. Zechariah is describing this, this horrible wickedness and then he describes God who comes into the wickedness and he, and he liberates them. And we feel the tension depending on your politics or whatever about America and how America gets involved in foreign wars or whatever. But you're watching these tanks and you're seeing these kids and you're, you know, there's a kid who's playing football, soccer on a field and, and gets his legs blown off from a thing. And you're, I'm going, she's going, this is horrible. Someone needs to go in there and just put the beat down on these bad guys. And so you read and you go, oh, God's going to come and he's going to put the, the beat down. And a lot of times moderns were scandaled when we read about God punishing. Oh, hell. Oh, I don't believe in hell. You know, I believe in a God who love. You say, yeah, you know, people who say stuff like that are really privileged people who, who've lived in a, in, a, in a really nice bubble. I tell you, if you're a little kid who just had his legs blown off and his mom raped and his dad sent off uh, to war, and I said, hey, God's going to come and he's going to bring hell to those people, you, that little kid's not going to say, you know, I just think God's a God of love. I just think, you know, that's just such a mean idea. You know, you're going to go, get them. Good, they're bad. See, now our problem as moderns, though, is we don't think we're bad. So when we read about hell and punishment and stuff like that, we go, oh, this just sounds, you know, because what? We're good people. We're spiritual. That's what people say. Uh, you know, I'm spiritual. I'm good. No, no, no. We're not good. We've rebelled against God. We all have. We all have. We all deserve punishment. And the sooner you stop being scandalized by the punishment, then you can be scandalized by heaven. Because that's the real scandal. That he would forgive anyone, and that he would give us the hope of heaven, and that this would take place. Continuing in the text, verse 4, we've got to get this done. In the day, he will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will split east to the west. A very large valley in the mountain will move towards the north and the other towards the south. I'll show you a little picture here for the Mount of Olives so you have a little orientation. It's extending from the, uh, the borderline of Jerusalem to the east, which is higher in elevation. So, so there's a valley below. You will flee, verse 5, speaking of the valley, valley to the mountains, the valley of the mountaintops will reach Azel. You will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah and the king of Judah. So he's referencing, you know, it's like the Northwood quake. You remember that? Uh, you know, so you guys remember that quake? You're going to run like that. And then the Lord will come and the holy ones with him. The world will come in the holy city. The Messiah will come on the mountain. He's going to plunder the enemies. Uh, this is Jewish eschatology, day of the Lord, the present evil age, transitioning into the kingdom come. Zechariah describes something more than military. Draw your eyes back at the text, verse 6. He says, in that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither uh, day nor night, and it will come about at evening, at time there will be light. Look at verse 8, and in that day living waters will flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the east sea and half towards the west sea, and, and, and it will be summer as well as winter. This is more than military. This is cosmic. This is heavenly. The earth is actually being reshaped. Night becomes day. Uh, waters start bursting forth out of dry land. The prophet Ezekiel spoke about a river that was flowing from Jerusalem in the last days. Jerusalem is lower in topography. And so it, uh, many speculate that maybe uh, what Zechariah is describing is the city is supernaturally elevating up by the power of God. The prophets in the Hebrew Bible describe unusual supernatural phenomena around, around the Messiah coming and his kingdom coming. Uh, theologians, we refer to this as the millennial kingdom. When, when Jesus comes and all those promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David, all of them, they literally come to pass as he reigns on earth in this millennium, an era of a thousand years. Uh, the book of Revelation in chapter 20 uh, says six times it's going to be a period of a thousand years. And so we call it a millennium. The Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11 talked about Israel being restored and there being this flourishing and all those promises that were made and Israel being this land and, and, and it healing the lands of the earth and flowing out like it comes to fruition. And the Lord, verse 9, look at the text, will be king over the earth and in that day the Lord will be the only one and his name will be the only one. 
Here we, we see deliverance has pushed it back, and here we see the deliverer's peace. Verse 10, let's, let's, get, let's get through this. All the land will be changed from the plain of uh, Gebat to Rimon in the south of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will rise and remain in the site of Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate to the tower of Hanel, and, and the king's wine presses, and people will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Zechariah describes the plains of this holy land and waters are gushing and the land is flourishing and people are being brought to peace and wickedness has been brought down. A, div a divine penalty has come. This is the next point on your outline. Look at verse 12. The plague with which the Lord will strike the peoples. The war of Jerusalem. It will come about in that day. A great panic from the Lord will fall on them. Look at verse 13. Skip down for sake of time, verse 16 of chapter 14. It will come about that those who are left of the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. The prophet foresees a day when the king comes. There's a millennium. The earth is experiencing a flourishing and renewing. The, the people of Israel are there. A temple is there. People are mediating. People are celebrating the Feast of Booths, these great Jewish festivals that are pointing people to God and saying, God loves you. God forgives you. God's provided a way for you. And, and not just Israel is coming. The text says the nations are coming. The nations are coming. Jesus, we read at the beginning of our service in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 25, what did we read? He's going to rescue the sheep. He's going to judge the goats. Among the goats, there will be those who enter into the kingdom because they were on the side of Israel. And the book of Revelation records this as well. And, and the nations are invited to come in. Verse 17, Zechariah, let's get through it. It will be whichever the families of the earth does not go to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. There will be no rain for them. And if a family in Egypt doesn't go up to enter, there will be no rain or fall on them. It will be a, a plague which the Lord smites the nations who go to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And this will be the punishment on Egypt, the punishment on the nations who do not go and celebrate the feasts. It's like the king is on the throne. He's brought his kingdom. He's restored everything. Peace is coming. There's water gushing out of deserts. There's lands raising up. There's angels and humans and resurrection. There's a temple. Ezekiel writes about this in Ezekiel 37 through 42. There's all this cool stuff going on, and there's still people who are like, eh, I, you know, I don't want to go. I don't want to worship. I don't want to do the temple. I don't want him. Like I said, there's a God who is, and there's a God men want. And even in those last days, there will be people who say, I, I don't want him. I don't want him. The, the, here, the, the, this, this, this point next is destiny purified, and this is the last point, chapter 14. We get to the end of it here. We got just two verses to wrap this thing. Here we go. In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots in the, in the Lord's house will be like the, the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and all who sacrifice will come, and they will take them, and they will boil them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord or the hosts of that day. In the ancient scriptures, the Canaanites were, were unclean. Now there's no longer a Canaanite because the Canaanites have been made clean. The word here can, uh, that is used for Canaanite can also be used of, of traitors, of people who turn on their people. They're, they're going to be cleansed, the text says. Along with humans being cleansed, the creation is being cleansed. Animals, look at the animals here. The horses that are viewed as unclean in, uh, in, in kosher law, Leviticus 11, now they're made holy. The horses, look at the text, they're inscribed with bells. Uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, you see bells are attached and adorned to the priest's garments. The horses are like, like priests. The, the inscription on the horses is what? Holy to the Lord. That's the inscription that's on the priest's turban in Exodus 28, 36. Horses are made clean. Canaanites are made clean. Inanimate objects are being made clean. We read about common bowls inside of people's homes are being made into bowls that could be used inside of the temple, like holy pots. Everything's being reversed. Everything's being made clean. Horses are being made clean. Horses are also pictures of war. But here they're being brought into peace and tranquility. This is what salvation does. I've told you several times today in this message that there's a God who is, and He's Father, Son, and Spirit. I've told you this bad news that we've sinned against him. I've told you this good news that he offers you forgiveness. I've told you this good news that not only does he offer you forgiveness, but he's actually paid for it himself in the sending of the son. 
and I told you that the Son took the place for you. I told you that if you mourn and you come to Him and you, you confess to Him, He will forgive you. Not only does He forgive you, but He cleanses you. He calls you what you are not. He makes you holy. He justifies you. And He stands before you today as the one who is pierced. And by His Spirit, if you see Him and, and you mourn for Him and you, you see this rejection that He went through, not just Judas rejecting him, not just the people in the first century rejecting him, but you and I, we've all rejected him, and he still says to you, it's okay. You can't sin your way out of his love. You, you, can't, you can't do something so horrible that he won't forgive you. He offers you forgiveness today. Jesus gathered his disciples together before he was to be rejected, and he offered them this little meal with bread and, and wine, it was a part of, of Passover elements that looked at, in the Exodus when God liberated his people and was faithful to his people. And there he is with a, a group of guys who are going to abandon him. There he is with Judas who's going to sell him out for, for money. He's going to sell him out for money. We talk about corrupt powers and how they use money and politicians and all these corrupt powers. And you see it right there. You see corruption right there. And Jesus looks in the face of it. And he says, what? This is my body broken for you. Judas, come eat. Disciples, come eat. And then he said to his disciples, do this as often as you can to the ends of the ages. This system wasn't for the twelve, it's for Delray Church. Let's eat the bread and let's think of the one who has come. And I shared with you John and how... John saw the one who was pierced, and John gave that description in his gospel about the, the Romans who thrust into his side and the, the blood that poured out of his side. And Jesus, there he is with his disciples, and he, he takes the cup and he says, this blood is the blood of the new covenant, and it's, it's given for you. And, and, and after that, you'd see him bleeding out. Here's a symbol of my bleeding out. As he hung on the cross, as he, as, he, as he was moments from being stabbed by those Roman soldiers, as he hung on the cross, dead a corpse, he would, he would utter, it is finished. Truly it was finished. And the theology of William Coper, the English poet, he so beautifully captures it with his hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all there, guilty stains. Let's drink. Losing guilty stains in the blood. Zechariah saw a river flowing that would cleanse in the last days. John saw a river flowing out of the side of Christ that cleanses in these days. Zechariah saw the vision of the pierced one. John saw the pierced one with his own eyes. They will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Notice they mourn by seeing him. The Spirit opens your eyes to see him. And you, brother or sister here today, who by faith you believe in what he has done, that is a reminder to you that your faith in him is not of your works. It is the work of the Spirit. And it is a reminder to you that as we leave this place and we tell people of the God who is, and we tell them that he loves them, and we tell them that he forgives them, and we bring the oracle, the burden about like, yeah, we're going to die and he's going to judge us. But, and then we bring that good news that he offers us freedom. Don't be afraid of telling people that message. Look, if you're going to get canceled for something, make it count. If someone's going to unfriend and unfollow me, let, let it be for this, the one who is pierced for us. And as we lift this burden, as we bring this message, we know that it, it's not for us to lift. He's lifted it. And we're reminded personally that he's lifted our sins. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And as I'm praying, here's my prayer for you. That there would be none here today who don't have the burden of sin and guilt lifted. And you might say to yourself, I've been a believer a long time. What you're saying isn't for me. Oh no, it is. That, that we would all have a sense of mourning for our sin. And we'd all have a sense of, I mean, this is why you're here on Sunday. This is why you come to church here. Because you know, you're going to get the Bible and you're going to have someone talk to you about Jesus and what he's done. 
You're not going to get some sugar-coated, fluffy, fluffy, or whatever. You're just going to you're going to be taught the Bible. You're going to be pointed to Jesus, and there's liberation in coming to Him. So that's my prayer. Let me pray and let's sing. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you lift burdens. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Father, lift burdens this morning. And some of us aren't aware that we have burdens because in our sin, we've suppressed it so much. We have family members and friends who are hurting because of our sin. And we're oblivious to it. We have things in our hearts, darkness in our hearts, that we've grown callous to. Things that years ago we were sensitive to and sins that years ago we, were, we fought and we just caved in. We treat our sin like a fad diet and we fight it for a couple of weeks and get a little results and we just go back to our gluttony. Lord, set us free. Set us free. Lord, I pray that all who are hearing this message would know Lord, this, this is a message, this is an oracle for Zechariah to us all to be liberated this morning. And may we know that liberation. Thank you for this cup that we drank. It's a little piece of bread. And, and, and the physical reminder of it that is this spiritual reality that the eternal son became a man. He had a body and his body was pierced and bled out for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, move here this morning. That all, that all who hear this message would be brought in mourning and brought in new life in you. Receive these final songs as we, we sing and close our service. We sing, God, because you're worthy of song. Uh, people sing about things they're happy about. And, and, and Lord, we're, we're happy that you've saved us. We sing when we're sad too, Lord. And we're, we have sorrow for our sin and happiness for salvation. And so, Lord, we sing and, and, and we say you are worthy to be sung to. And so, Lord, as we stand and we sing, be honored and glorified and move in our time of song. In Christ's name, amen.